This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been talking about on the podcast for the past 10 years and writing about on the Art of Manliness. We've done that by creating a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's hard skills like wilderness survival, self-defense, but also soft skills like personal finances, social skills, how to be a better husband, better father. And we all send you weekly challenges to put you outside of your comfort zone. We hold you accountable for your physical fitness, doing a good deed every day so you're thinking outside of yourself. We have our final Roman of two 2019 coming up in September. So if you'd like to get in on that, head over to strenuouslife.co. Make sure your, your email is on our list. And then when September rolls around the first week, we'll send an email letting you know enrollment opens up. So strenuouslife.co, hope to see you there. Welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, if you haven't been living under a rock these past few years, you probably have heard of the paleo lifestyle, which is this idea that we should look to evolution and specifically our hunter-gatherer past to inform our health decisions. Um, So we should look to how our caveman ancestors ate, um, how they exercised and how they moved, how they slept. And then by doing those things, um, we'll have optimal health. Very popular idea, lots of books, blogs about how to live paleo and the arguments on on why it's beneficial. Um, And our guest today is one of the figures who have, uh, who's done a lot to popularize and uh, bring this out to the mainstream. His name's John Durant. Uh, He blogs at huntergatherer.com. A few years ago, the New York Times did a piece on him and other New Yorkers who are living the paleo lifestyle in the middle of New York City. Uh, Stephen Colbert, the Colbert Report, had him on his show, interview him about how he's living like a modern-day caveman in the 21st century. Anyways, John has come out with a book called The Paleo Manifesto, Ancient Wisdom for Lifelong Health where he makes a case for the the paleo lifestyle. And what, what I find interesting about John's book is he doesn't just focus on our hunter-gatherer past. Uh, he also makes the argument there's things we can learn about how to have optimal health um, from other stages of human development. Um, for example, when we went through the agricultural, rev- agricultural revolution, there were he makes the argument there were cultural adaptations that can help us have better health. Um, from that time period. And he also makes the argument there's things from the industrial revolution and the information age that we can take to have lifelong health. So it's just a fascinating reading. doesn't just focus on how to eat like a caveman. He focuses on sort of a holistic view of uh, the paleo lifestyle or just, you know, using evolution to inform how to make healthy decisions um, for ourselves. So it's an interesting podcast. I think you, if you've are familiar with the paleo lifestyle, you're going to find some new insights that you might not have heard of. If you're sort of new to it, never heard of it, I think you'll, it's a great introduction to, to it and a great starting point. So stay tuned. All right, John Durant, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. All right. So, um, paleo manifesto is your book. Uh, you published this book in a time when like the market is just saturated with paleo stuff. There's like paleo blogs, there's paleo books, there's like businesses helping you live paleo lifestyle. Like you'll learn how to eat like a caveman, exercise like a caveman. I think I've even seen an article like how to poop like a caveman. (laughs) Um, With all the saturation, how did you differentiate the paleo manifesto from all the stuff that's out there about the paleo lifestyle? Well, first, it's not a diet book. And a lot of the books out there are either diet books and cookbooks. And those are 
great for what for uh, for for what they are. But I, <laughs> when I sat down with my agent and was talking to some publishers, um, a few of them wanted me to write a diet book, and I said I, I, I don't I can't even read a diet book, so I, I can't spend a year writing one. So, but but really, what really makes it different is I I downplay the Paleolithic actually, even though it's in the title, the Paleo Manifesto. Um, I I spend a lot of time talking about what we can learn from uh, other eras of human history, both before the Paleolithic and after it. Um, and there's a historical element there that I think is missing from from a lot of other Paleo books. Um, that, yeah, that's what, we're going to talk about that more about the different how you break down the different age stages of human development. Um, one of the things I loved about the Paleo Manifesto, right, like you said, it's not a diet book, and you did a great job um, navigating and answering a lot of the criticisms levied at you know the Paleo lifestyle. And you know, one of them that I've heard a lot is that uh, you know the Paleo Manifesto, or not the Paleo Manifesto, but the Paleo lifestyle is like it rest on this logical fallacy of argumentum ad naturum, right? You know, whatever is natural is good, right? Um, which isn't true. You know, like cancer is natural, but like we don't want cancer. Right. Um, so, and I think you address that in your book a little bit, like that, yeah, that criticism. The, there's, there's the naturalistic fallacy that if something's natural, it's healthy or good or moral. There's also a, a flip side to that called the moralistic fallacy, which is just because something is moral or desirable doesn't make it true, doesn't make it so. Mm-hmm. So really what what I, I tried to do was um, look at it through a lens of biological realism, saying we are trying to understand human nature, uh, how it came to be, what's relatively fixed about it, and what's relatively flexi- flexible. Because th- there's, there's some parts of our lifestyle that we can change a lot, and it's not going to have a huge impact on our health um, or on, on the rest of our life. But if, if we're talking about uh, sugar intake, well, yeah, human nature basically means you can't eat tons of refined sugar and, and expect not to have health problems. All right. Um, so let's talk uh, you know, a little bit more about the, the, the stages of human development. Because, yeah, the book's called The Paleo Manifesto, but you talk about the different eras of of, of human evolution, and I guess you, it'd be better to call your books more about ancest, you know, finding inspiration from our ancestors, like ancestral health. Uh, yeah, is would be I th- I've heard that term thrown around. Um, yeah. So let's go into there. Let's talk about the different stages of uh, you know human development and why is it so important not just to look at the Paleolithic era when you're trying to figure out how to optimize your health and your psychology. Yeah. So when when you say stages of human development, just for the listeners, sure. um, I, I start chronologically, um, even before the Paleolithic, what I call the animal age. And it sort of represents our time from the Cambrian explosion, when you start to see um, lots of different types of animal forms enter the fossil record, uh, to the beginning of the Paleolithic about 2.6 million years ago. Um, and And... And, and, and what that era represents is really our commonality with all these other species and other primates and things like that. You can learn a lot about human health, not even by looking at humans, just by looking at, at other species. And so I go on a trip to the Cleveland Zoo to learn how to keep gorillas healthy in captivity. And that introduces an evolutionary approach to say, let's look at the natural habitat of a species and then combine it with modern medical technology. Then you get the Paleolithic age, the agricultural age, 
the industrial age, and the information age. And each one of those chapters has uh, lessons that I draw from our ancestors and the health challenges that they faced. So what are some like lessons you can take from, say, the Paleolithic age? Eating frequency. Any health issue you want. It could be sun exposure, temperature, eating frequency, movement, uh, anything in biology you want. The, the best way to understand it is to put aside humans for a moment and just understand it among a variety of different animals and animal species. So if it's eating frequency, you can see, oh, well, gorillas eat all day long. Uh, lions eat sporadically every three to four days. We're omnivores. We're in the middle. Then you, then you go to the Paleolithic and you say, how did eating frequency evolve in human beings and in our in our in hominins, you know, pre-human hominins. Okay, well, we were omnivores, and we ate probably a couple, few times a day, but not three square meals a day. Well, then you go into the agricultural age, and things changed. Then people became farmers; they settled down. But it was more recent; it was within the last ten thousand years. And this is where you sort of modify your understanding of human nature based on our cultural experience and and possibly recent genetic adaptation. So in, if, if it's eating frequency, then uh, you start to see fasting uh, traditions emerge where you sort of have purposeful appetite loss. Um, and then in the industrial age, that's where things really go wrong for a lot of folks. We, we change our habitats and how we live in our lifestyle so much that we don't have time to adapt either culturally or genetically. This could be eating all day long and having food on demand and you get tons of obesity. And then when you think about the information age, where we are now, we have the ability to redesign how we live. And, and so the challenge in the information age is, is to say, okay, given who I am and the life I have today, how do I construct a habitat and an eating frequency based on all this other information that works for me? So that, it's a little bit long-winded, but that's how I try to incorporate um, all, all the different evolutionary history that, that goes into each one of us. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. You mentioned fasting, um, sort of an agricultural age adaptation, right? So we had during the agricultural revolution, suddenly humans had food available at all times before in the paleolithic was a little more random. You ate, you know, you had that big score with hunting and then you may have gathered a few nuts and berries, right? right. Um, so the culture, adapted to that new environment we found ourselves in. and But you also talk about um, other cultural responses that happened during the agricultural revolution um, that pretty much like prevented infectious diseases. And you, you use the examples of the uh, ancient Hebrews. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's just completely, it's just utterly fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually my favorite chapter in the book. It's called Moses the Microbiologist. And the greatest health challenge that early farmers... Um, early agriculturalists faced was infectious disease. You had large numbers of people and domesticated animals living in close proximity for the first time in early cities, no knowledge of hygiene, um, primitive hygienic technology, and infectious disease explodes. Um, the problem is that uh, germs are invisible and infectious disease is hard to understand how it works because germs can spread in so many different ways. So it's around this time when you start to see these early, some early religions like Judaism, Zoroastrianism, where hygiene and purity become very important parts 
of ritual practice. Um, the notion of cleanliness and sinfulness were pretty much one and the same um, in, in traditional Judaism. And, and when you actually, you know, a lot of people talk about the Bible but haven't, or the Torah, but haven't actually read it. Um, I went back and read the first five books of, of the Bible, um, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it's incredible how much disgust plays a role in these purity codes. Uh, um, staying away from bodily fluids, concern with any type of sex, pretty much, making you unclean, uh, staying away from corpses, uh, staying away from insects and vermin, um, and all these different rules that, in retrospect, um, look like an intuitive understanding of the germ theory of disease. And, and so then I found all these papers showing that in the uh, 19th and early 20th century, uh, Jewish folks tended to have a five to 10 year life expectancy advantage relative to neighboring Gentiles, primarily due to a lower infectious disease burden. So there's this, the whole chapter is about how when infectious disease was our, was our greatest, emerged as our greatest health threat, you had these cultural codes that emerged in response to help people stay clean, like washing their hands. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, just, it was completely just fascinating. And um, yeah, that was, I think you mentioned how Christianity, in some ways, took us back a little bit in terms of health because Christianity got rid of that idea. Those, mm. the, the, it's the old law, right? It's the dead law. You know, what goes well, in the body is not, doesn't defile. Defile. Doesn't yeah. Right. Yeah. Jesus, it, it's in three gospels. He said, a defilement uh, doesn't come from without, it comes from within. Yeah. So he was saying defilement was a, was a spiritual, moral um, uh, state, not a physical state with actual conduct. And one of the, one of the biggest disagreements he had with the Pharisees was over hand-washing. He and his followers, Jesus and his followers did not wash their hands before eating. Something, by the way, that pretty much every modern Christian in, in the developed world, at least, does, or at least we hope we, hope we all do. <laughs> um, and, and Jesus was saying, you all are so obsessed with these rituals, but it's getting in the way of loving your neighbor. And, and so basically... Um, all, all of these hygiene rules, there are hundreds of them, they're complicated. You have to memorize them all. You have to follow them, getting circumcised, um, not using cookware and dishes that belong to a Gentile, um, uh, contact with other things that are unclean. It makes it very hard to go out and interact with people who don't believe the same thing you do. So basically, Jesus's great innovation was he got rid of the purity code and kept some of the moral beliefs and universalized them. But basically, this sends Christianity into a direction where hygiene and hygienic practices aren't as emphasized. And, it, and then eventually, you get, the, you get the Black Death, where you have Christians dying in large numbers uh, throughout Western Europe um, and people all throughout the world. But uh, but then Jews were observed to be dying at a lower rate and were persecuted for this. But <clears throat> observant Jews would have been washing their hands, uh, staying away from insects and vermin, and the Black Death was 
spread by fleas on rats, um, protecting their water supply, bathing, washing their clothes, and avoiding corpses. So if you went back in time and had to advise people during the Black Death on what to do, it would look a lot like Orthodox Judaism. Yeah, very, very interesting. And so I want to take this to the modern day, because right. um, you, you talk about this a little bit in your book as well. Um, so one of the criticisms, and I've levied this criticism towards like the paleo people and like CrossFitters, is that like they're almost they're like they're like a religion, right? They're very cult like. They got their 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 you know their uniform, their ritual clothing to put on, their compression <laughs> socks. Um, you know they they talk about their box as sort of like this temple. Um, right. They're very, you know, fastidious about what they eat, all right? And, like, the goal is to out-paleo the other guy, sort of like how Orthodox Jews, the Wendy Gay st- status in that community is being more Orthodox than the next guy. Um, and they get, I mean, it, that's one of the reasons, like, they're easy targets. Like, man, you guys are sort right. of cultish. Right. Um, but you kind of um, argue that's not, that's not a bad thing. And maybe this is a cultural response, a cultural adaptation to our a new environment that we live in. Well— Here's how I see it. The, we live in the most sedentary and obese era in all of human history. And, and so we, we need more fitness cults. It, it doesn't just have to be CrossFit and it doesn't just have to be paleo, but boy, we could use a lot more fitness cults because I don't know if you've walked around outside lately, but the country <laughs> needs it. We all need it. I need it. And, um, but you, it's, a, it's a really interesting comparison and, and it speaks to the power of ritual and, and habit-making and, and that ritual having a functional health benefit. I mean, you, again, you go back to Judaism or, other, or, or early Christianity, and there were a set of actions that you were supposed to take that would have functional benefits in your life. Um, in Christianity, this is often referred to as a prosperity gospel. In Judaism— the notion of everyday actions and cleanliness, which we just talked about, would have would have provided a huge health benefit. Um, and different times call for different measures. And now the challenge is uh, motivating people on a regular basis to move and to eat relatively healthy. And and you know, so so ritual community. Um, are really important aspects of that. And geez, that sounds a heck of a lot like religion. Yeah, it, it really does. And it's because, like, it's, you know, you form your identity around it, right? Right. Like, people, you know, it's not just CrossFit or, uh, you know, paleo, but like vegetarianism, which you talk sure. about. That's, that's like a new identity, right? And they treat it like a religion almost. Like, or oh, like, not uh, almost. Yeah. They do. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that. Or like, you know, the whole, um, whole food, right? Like you're supposed to like, like what's it called? Bio, bio, there's like a word for it. I forgot. I can't remember. You're supposed to like get like, bio. yeah, or like raw food, right? You're not supposed to like right. cook your food. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like, I look at that. It's like food and like your fitness is like the new religion in our kind of right. secular age. Um, but well, maybe that's, maybe that's not a bad thing. It, some, uh, you have to be careful that you don't head off in a goofy direction. Yeah. And, yeah. and that you, you don't, you know, you, you don't enter the paleo echo, echo chamber or the paleo bubble or the vegan bubble, um, and you still have sort of some feedback with people who disagree with you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the similarities are, are right there. And, and in terms of identity, I sort of think of identity as um, if there aren't people getting a tattoo of, of it, 
it's not meaningful to a lot of people. <laughs> like nobody, I, I dare you to show me a picture of, of one person who has a South Beach diet tattoo on their body. <laughs> Probably not. Right? But vegans, you'll see vegan tattoos. There are CrossFit tattoos. There are even some paleo tattoos. <clears throat> I'm not recommending people go out and get any one of those tattoos. But when you start to see the tattoos cropping up, you're like, oh, people identify with this because they want to tell the world. It's so important to them that they'll permanently put it on their skin to broadcast it to the world that that it matters to them. All right. Um, let's go off into a direction because you, you touch on this in the book, um, but people often are either wary of talking about it um, or they're just not interested in it. Um, you, and I've known from your reading your blog, Hunter Gatherer, um, you talk about masculinity and like, you know, incorporating how, how is our ancestral past affected gender and how can we incorporate those things into today's world? Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is violence. Okay. It's a very masculine thing, right? Um, studies show that men tend to be more violent, uh, than women. And it's funny when you read like the paleo blogs, or the paleo books, like they always fail to mention violence because, and the thing is, that was a big part of human history in the paleolithic, the agricultural, the industrial, like, yeah, I mean, you're more likely to be murdered, uh, than die, you know, a peaceful death. Right. Right. Um, so what role do you think should violence play in a paleo life or should it even, is that one of those things maybe like it's natural, but it's not good. Um, are there ways to incorporate violence? into a paleo lifestyle, a modern paleo lifestyle? It, it's a great question. There, there actually was a presentation on this topic by, <clears throat> by Tucker Max, actually, at a conference uh, a few years ago. Um, and, and one of the points he made is that with the rise of mixed martial arts um, and MMA, they've, they've, for example, found that police officers who are trained in a martial art are less likely to... Uh, misfire their weapon or or uh, have have something escalate to gunfire um, than when they're not. So basically, somebody who feels confident in their own ability to defend themselves just simply through physical combat is feels less uh, need to resort to, say, using a gun or something like that. So I, I actually think there are a lot of instances where learning... A- martial art can be incredibly beneficial the 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 theme if you look at all the a lot of the great movies of in martial arts there's there's a very simple theme to a lot of them which is you have a young male a boy a young man who has lots of raw talent um physical strength natural ability but his problem is that he doesn't know how to control his own strength and he lets his emotions he's hot-headed he lets his emotions you know take a hold of him and the teaching of the wise old sensei is uh, discipline and self-control. And that's what a lot of people don't realize about martial arts and, and in other forms of sort of ritualized violence or practice violence is ultimately it teaches you how to control yourself better, um, not to be a wild shoot-from-the-hip type. Um, so I, I think that's very beneficial. But even just look at the rise of um, – just look, I mean sports – is most men's exposure to ritualized warfare, tribal warfare. One side wears red, one side wears blue face paint, and they (laughs) pretend to kill each other. Um, 
And 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 so I you know I do think the rise of CrossFit has benefited from basically creating a sport like atmosphere in in the gym in the box as as they call it. Um, so I I think it's incredibly important for men to lift heavy stuff, learn martial arts, get into physicals you know some sort of grappling or wrestling, um, and and that actually makes you more in control of yourself rather than less. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Huckberry is my favorite place to shop online because they have everything a guy needs or wants. Everything from clothing, stuff for your everyday carry, like pocket knives, even little totems, little things you can carry around, camping equipment, things to furnish your home with. Pretty much all the clothes I own are from Huckberry. They own a brand called Flint and Tinder. They make everything from underwear, jeans, t-shirts, hoodies. They got a wax trucker jacket. You name it, they've got it. I love it because it just it's classic, down-to-earth, rugged, and it's all made in the USA. Everyday carry, pocket knives. My favorite pocket knife is from Huckberry. It's this one from a company based out of New Mexico. They have a dinosaur bone put in the handle. It's pretty cool. And the blade's really nice. So if you want to see some of the things I've gotten from Huckberry over the years, go to aom.is slash aomhuck. See some of my favorite things. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout to save 15% on your first purchase. So again, check out aom.is slash aomhuck. That's A-O-M-H-U-C-K. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout to save 15% off on your first purchase. And now back to the show. So one thing you talk about as well that we've known from the historical record is that there's there was a there's been a division of labor, right, amongst men and women. Uh, in the Paleolithic era, men were the hunters and women primarily gathered. Right. Um, and you talked about uh, your first hunt in the book. Uh, besides, you know, getting a, a, a lean source of wild game, right, protein, uh, was there a psychological benefit to your hunt? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I'm not the first person to write about this, so I don't want to oversell my own experience. Sure. But I I, I learned um, I, I learned some guns. I had shot guns before, but I took a gun safety course and um, and learned was participated in a demonstration of of how to field dress a deer. And then I, I joined the, the, the biggest challenge is finding other hunters to go with. Cause it's real hard if it's your first time to just go out into the woods and know what to do. Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to like go hunting like for the past three years and it's hard cause like no one does it anymore. Right. Um, so yeah. I, and it's an informal tradition yeah. typically passed down from man to man exactly. and family and an extended family. And, and if, if you don't, you know, my father and neither of my grandfathers were hunters. Um, and so I, I never learned it, even though I'm from Michigan and tons of people hunt in Michigan. So I, I basically found some surrogate uncles and, uh, cousins and things like that. And a family friend invited me to go off to a place called deer camp. And it was about 15 guys that have been getting together for, for decades. And, and I joined in their tradition and they just, you know, informally taught me everything I need to know. I shot a deer. Uh, it was, it's a, not a, not a trophy. Um, <laughs> it was a, it was a male yearling. So I basically shot Bambi. Um, I see all the guys teased me when I, when I got Bambi back to the barn and, uh, and we were, we were uh, butchering it, you know, Oh, that's a nice dog you shot there. But what I thought is, actual natural predators target the the sickly the young and the sickly there you go 
So I was just you're, being a natural predator. Yeah, you're harnessing your inner your inner caveman, right? <laughs> That's right. So it's it, it when you when you kill something yourself. This sounds a little morbid to say, but it, if if people grow food themselves, if if you grow herbs yourself, the food just tastes better. If you cook it yourself, it just tastes better. It sounds morbid, but if you kill something yourself, it tastes better. It's a more meaningful meal, and with with hunting when you kill something that big most people are not going to just stick it all in their freezer and just eat it themselves you share it with other people and that is a great feeling particularly if there's a woman there that you like <laughs> and you're like here's some meat and <laughs> she's like hubba hubba yeah <laughs> the strong provider it 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 will never go out of style. Never will. Um, so you talk about kind of related to hunting. So you talk about vegetarianism, and yeah. why more women typically are vegetarians. Can you talk a little bit about that? And generally, men like to eat meat. I know that's not the case for everybody. So before people right. like say, "Oh, I'm a man and I eat meat," or "I'm a woman and I eat meat," right. generally, right. Uh, women tend to be more women tend to be vegetarians than men. Why is yeah. that? So. I think it has to do with three things. Um, first is women do tend to have more empathy for other other living things. And this is just an overwhelming effect when you look at survey data and things like that. Um, and, and, and so when it comes to things like whether we should use animals for medical testing, men are pretty gung-ho on it and women tend to tend not so much. So they tend to be more empathetic. The second thing that plays a big role, which I think is underappreciated, is that women tend to have a more sensitive disgust reflex than men do. Um, usually, this has been described as having a, quote, weak stomach, which I, is an inaccurate way to describe it. Um, it's more like a discriminating taste. Our disgust reflex evolved as an intuitive microbiology to keep us away from potential sources of infection, bodily fluids, rotting flesh, corpses, um, things that smell bad, which are usually rotting. Um, and women in the past either would have been pregnant or nursing or carrying a small child for most of, for most of their adult life. Um, and, and so it would have been of paramount importance to avoid infection because pregnant women and small children are particularly prone to infection. So, um, so women, from an evolutionary standpoint, it, it made a lot of sense for them to get essentially get grossed out easily. So, so you, you're more likely to have a woman be empathetic towards, say, Bambi. And then um, somebody sees a video of what actually goes on in a factory farm or reads a book like Skinny Bitch, which is filled with uh, triggers of disgust, things like feces or infection or bacteria or blood or corpses and it triggers the disgust reflex. And, and this can make meat, meat rots faster than plants, and so our disgust reflex can, can get triggered by meat. Um, and, and so that makes, can be harnessed to make all meat viscerally revolting. Hmm. And this is why, for example, um, a lot of vegans and vegetarians, for example, don't eat oysters, even though oysters uh, don't have much of a nervous system to speak of and are environmentally friendly, um, you know, they're and, and very nutritious. They are slimy and gross 
they resemble meat too much. Hmm. And so even though it makes sense on sort of like a like a logical level, the disgust it can't get past the disgust reflex very easily. Very interesting. And then real briefly, the the sort of the third step in the process is our disgust reflex is very closely tied to ideology and morality. Probably through a lot of the religious stuff I described around the agricultural age in in that it it was um, avoiding infection, um, outsiders, people with novel pathogens, certain types of sexual behaviors, things like that, um, were closely tied to religious and ideological beliefs. So you start to see eating meat as this black and white sort of yes or no type thing where there's not a lot of shades of gray. So empathy, disgust, ideology, and you end up with um, a lot of vegetarians and a high proportion of them who are women. Fascinating stuff. Um, let's talk about, I think this is an interesting point you made. So in, in hunter-gatherer society, men did the hunting, women did the um, the gathering, right? Right. Um, and then the agricultural, and, and for the most part, yeah, there was a hierarchy. Men were sort of the, the leaders, but... You know, some people would argue that it was there really wasn't a patriarchy, right? So to speak, of as we know today, or as you know, people would argue we have today. Um, but then the agricultural revolution happened, and we had this surplus of food, and we can we had you know we didn't have to worry about hunting anymore. That um, how did that affect gender? So it's it's complicated. It is complicated. There are, <laughs> we don't know particularly for the earliest parts of the Paleolithic, it's not exactly clear sure. what the, the sexual dynamics were um, since we, you know, we can only compare to other primates and the exactly. remains don't tell us too much. So um, what we basically know is that um, agricultural societies became very hierarchical. The, the people at the top were men uh, almost, almost exclusively and uh, there were a lot of restrictions on female sexuality, a lot of restrictions on fem- on sexuality overall, both men and women, but definitely more on female sexuality and and women having you know fewer rights than men. The um, the what what I would point out here though is that even in agricultural society, there were a lot of men on the bottom. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of uh, men without women who were you know, drafted into, mil- conscripted into militaries, forced to fight, you know, and if, if they fled, they would be killed by their superior officers, dying of disease um, in in military camps, going, you know, marching, fighting land wars in Asia. That's not fun. Yeah, for... men are disposable. That's right. right. You, you only need That's one right. man to impregnate, you know, a whole bunch of women. Thank you, Genghis Khan. Yeah. <laughs> So do you know, I, I heard this uh, question the other day, um, we know that uh, one man can impregnate far, far more women um, than any woman can, can bear children, but do you know which woman, um, and, and Genghis Khan is, is, is the top of that, but which woman um, has just as many descendants as Genghis Khan? I have no idea. His mother. <laughs> that, that, that's a good riddler right there. <laughs> a good like bar question. I'm sure she was very proud of it. Oh yeah. I'm sure she was. Um yeah, that that's a great point that uh men for most of human history have been at the bottom. 
Um, well, and it's a select, everybody... there's a select few of men who actually enjoy the, who enjoyed the fruits of whatever oh. hierarchy they had. Right. And, and, you know, everybody always looks up at, yeah. at the guys who had it the best. And there's no question that the men at the top had it, had it the best and their relatives and the landed interests and the nobles and things like that. But, you know, it, when, when you have a pyramid structure, you have a huge, huge base of people at the bottom, both men and women, but men would, would ha- you know, be conscripted into militaries and treated as disposable and, um, you know, far- being, out, being out farming um, is, is backbreaking labor and it's, it's not fun at all. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. Um, you know, I remember, I forgot what book I was reading this in. It was about a, you know, a modern day hunter gatherer society, right? That's, uh, those still exist. And it's interesting to see the, the difference between a hunter gatherer society and a, an agricultural society. And like the hunter gatherers, like farming was like women's work. Like they would just hunt. And they, they, I mean, when you told them that, oh yeah, in our country, in our culture, men do the farming. And they'd think like, that is the most ridiculous, that, that is the most unmanly thing in the world. Um, right. And it's funny that that like, basically for Kate, like, if you went back to hunter gatherers, like the best life, and I think you mentioned this in the book would be like, just kind of hanging out all day, hunting every now and then and like letting the women do most of the, <laughs> most of the work. Yeah, I, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's sort of funny. I, I mean, for in if if you can say there's a typical hunter gatherer paleolithic lifestyle um the man spends his day uh making weapons eating napping barbecuing ribs hunting big game having sex and raiding other villages <laughs> which sounds pretty fun to me <laughs> i don't know about you but ribs and hunting and sex and violence uh no, but I mean, I'm joking a little bit. The, uh, but you know, but some of these some of these hunter gatherer tribes, from what we can tell from anthropologists, they're not they're they're not these idyllic places sure. where the sexes are perfectly equal. You still tend to see uh, the top men dominate women and dominate everybody else in these tribes, but they they do tend to be more egalitarian. Um, and w- where more possessions are shared and there isn't as much hierarchy. Um, so yeah, just fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, here's a, a question I have. There. I know this is kind of going into dark waters and it's a place right. where people, you know, it's a lot of hand wringing. So just, okay. And, you know, looking from an ancestral health point of view, how does that affect relations between the sexes? Um, because I know there's a lot of guys in the, like the pickup artist community who, you know, they love to use evolutionary psychology um, as you know, to support their you know techniques on seducing and picking up women, um, should we use our ancestral past to guide our romantic relationships? Well, if evolution can inform any aspect of our lives, so for, forget the pickup artist community. We can learn a lot about uh, digestion and sexuality from looking at human evolution. You just have to do a good job of it. Um, the, you know, when, when, if you think about women in dating, they, they do take advantage of a lot of tips essentially from our evolutionary past. It could be, um, using different types of, of, of makeup or eyeshadow to, um, indicate youth or a push-up bra, 
uh, to indicate youth or high heels to accentuate the, you know, the, the butt and, and the breasts and, and the shape of, of the body. Um, so I, I think both sexes have, have been in sort of intuitively doing this for a long time. The thing with men is that, um, if female sexual, male sexuality is fairly, particularly for short term hookups is fairly straightforward. Men can get turned on, not, not even just by nudity, but by an expansive ankle. You know, like, oh, my, right? I'm ready to go. Like, <laughs> you show me the right woman's ankle, and I am, you know, yeah. full steam ahead, right? And um, some women sometimes are like that in the right circumstances, but a lot require sort of more, um, more displays of status or intelligence or humor or resources or physical strength or kindness or, you know, this a broader suite of traits. They're a little bit more complicated and a little bit more difficult to, to just sort of figure out if you're the average guy. So, so what I do think can be beneficial about some of the pickup stuff is you basically have a bunch of guys out there who are experimenting on themselves trying to figure out what attracts women. Where, where I think it can get off the rails a little bit is when it only focuses on short-term stuff in clubs. You know, like I don't, I rarely go to clubs. I occasionally end up there, but I'm not like gunning to like get some lines for the girls at the clubs. But, you know, I've, I've learned some things like, here's something that's so simple, but, but it took me until my 20s to realize it. Prior to this, I was not unsuccessful with women. I was successful with women. But even in New York, something as simple as, okay, if uh, if you've gotten someone's number and you're going to go out to drinks or have dinner or something, it's it's okay for the guy to just pick a place and say, here's a place, here's a time, does this work? And, and just assert it and then confirm that it's okay. I used to spend back and forth on the phone and over email, what type of cuisine and what neighborhood and what price range, blah, 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 basically looking to her for affirmation about what the choice should be. And it, and it never ended. It just kept going back and forth and back and forth. And once I basically said, oh, wait a second, uh, a lot of women prefer assertiveness in men. And so I would assert something, but women are adults right? And adults, if, if I choose a place that is inconvenient or an incorrect time, or is, she's allergic to everything in the restaurant, she's an adult. She can say, actually, that doesn't work. How about this? Yeah. So I think there are things like that where, where it can be totally helpful and, and healthy. Yeah. So just, yeah, just don't go out, you know, get inspired or not inspiration, I guess, learn from our ancestral past, learn from evolution, but like, don't go bonkers with it. Well, and, and same with food. It just, yeah. just, I'm not trying to go live in the wild. I'm not trying to go mimic everything about how they used to be. And I don't even know how everything used to be. Um, what I do know is that I can borrow, um, you know, certain key tips and tricks and integrate it into my life today with my modern goal. And I do that with, with the female stuff too. It's like, okay, you know, for, for a lot of guys, it, it boils down to uh, first and foremost, be confident or live a life where you have reason to be confident and are confident. Um, be physically fit. Uh, be uh, you know productive and excel in whatever you do. And you know, 
live a life where you have interesting stories and and tell them in humorous and charismatic ways and have good good friendships with you know with other people who are doing the same thing i do you know, sometimes I think people overcomplicate it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think they, they overcomplicate, you know, not only the, like the relationship thing, but like paleo, they, you know, overcomplicate it. And I think, yeah, it's just be some, you know, just take it easy, right? right. <laughs> I think that's the best philosophy to go. Um, let's talk about this. How is, you know, how long have you been doing this whole paleo thing? Because I remember, you, I remember watching you on the Colbert Report a while back ago. So how long has it been since you've been doing this? So I actually started going paleo in September of 2006. So it's been a little over seven years. And I mean, that's a while. I, uh, and I've done it with varying degrees of quote strictness and different regimens and, you know, things, you know, 80%, 100%, 75%. Um, so there's been some variation, but yeah, about seven years. And, and how has it made you a better man overall? Well, the, 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 First thing is that um, a lot of it was mood and confidence level. I would spike and crash a lot uh, at my first desk job. And even before that, I went through a breakup in college where my mood was all over the place. And if if I got too little sleep um, and had been drinking heavily the night before, it was like the world was coming to an end. And if, if I got enough sleep and exercise, it wasn't such a big deal. And it just blew my mind that my outlook on a relationship could be so influenced by what I had for lunch or whether I was physically healthy or not. So a large part of it was um, basically by by making my body healthy, I became a my mind became my confidence became more even and higher. um, and, And basically, I sort of evened out and became more solid, I think. That's awesome. Um, our, our time is coming to an end. I mean, we could talk. I mean, there's so yeah. much to talk about. Um, but uh, last question, uh, I always like to leave off with uh, some sort of like practical stuff that guys can do right now. Um, is So what, in your opinion, what are like two or three things that a guy can do today who's listening to this podcast that they can do today to start incorporating a paleo lifestyle that will have the most payoff? Well, with um, in terms of diet, the, the the big thing is uh, trying to avoid grains for a period of time. So take a month. Uh, dairy, a lot of people remove dairy. Some people add it back in. There's more disagreement. But um, if you want to try it, try it for a month. See how you do. Um, intermittent fasting is another great thing to try. It also raises your testosterone levels. Um, and... And, and so going periods of 18 to 24 hours every week or two and just have some water or some tea or something like that um, is really beneficial. Lifting heavy, you know, no surprise there, but lifting heavy is good for testosterone and makes you feel strong and confident afterwards. Um, I love cold exposure. Initially, I hated it. And the idea of a cold shower or jumping, you know, into the ocean in the winter or a cold pool or something like that was completely off-putting. Um, but I love alternating between a sauna or a steam room and doing some cold exposure that also raises your testosterone. Um, so, so really starting to get in touch with the wild animal inside of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, men in particular, I mean, we 
have evolved to move and we have evolved to fight and we have evolved to roughhouse, you know, as boys. And we have to respect that. We don't have to let it become violence in the way that it did before, but sitting on the couch is not a solution uh, with our, you know, with our hands tied behind our back, uh, growing fat and obese. So um, get in, get in touch with your inner animal. I love it. Well, John Durant, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating discussion. Thanks, Brett. I had, I had fun. Our guest today was John Durant. John is the author of The Paleo Manifesto, Ancient Wisdom for Lifelong Health, and you can find that on Amazon.com. And you can also follow John at HunterGatherer.com, where he blogs about the paleo lifestyle. Interesting, interesting stuff. Recommend you check it out. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly.